Hello and welcome to the 67th episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. In this episode, we're talking to Ryan Carrier of For Humanity. This conversation was recorded on the 13th of December 2021. We talk about the positivity of the For Humanity community, Ryan's adage, move fast and break people, trust, oversight, governance, privacy, cybersecurity and bias, contributing towards topics in independent audits of AI systems, creating an infrastructure of trust, companies disclosing found risks and the ethical decisions they make, human well-being as the whole point of business, and the fact that no one is compliant with GDPR. To find more episodes from us, you can go to machine-ethics.net. You can also contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can follow us on Twitter at machine underscore ethics, Instagram, Machine Ethics Podcast. And if you can, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thank you so much for your support and for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this interview with Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Um, ben, nice to see you. It's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, if you could just quickly introduce yourself, who you are and what do you do? My pleasure. Uh, my name is Ryan Carrier. I am the founder and executive director of For Humanity, which is a 501c3. That's a tax exemption in the United States, but kind of commonly known. Uh, but we are a public charity. And uh, the mission is pretty simple. We examine and analyze downside risk associated with AI and autonomous systems. And where possible, we want to engage in risk mitigation because if we can mitigate all of these downside risks, then we get the best possible benefit for humanity. And thus where this huge, overly ambitious name came from. I love it. It is 100% ambitious, but it's kind of like, um, from what I've seen of your work so far, it's it's been it's just been full of um as far as i can tell like positivity so i guess the name almost reflects how you are kind of operating there there's a lot to be said for that uh it, it keeps us focused on two things it keeps us focused on who do we work for like when everyone who's in for humanity is a volunteer so when they spend their time here when they when they put their thoughts and energy and their minds towards these problems they know who they're working for. It's a, it's, a, it's a very distinct bias. We are trying to help people, not corporations, not governments. We're trying to help people. And then when you say for humanity, it's like, well, you can't be for everybody. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to be for everybody. But actually what it reminds us of is that we can be more and more and more and more inclusive of the people who we are working for. And, and so we strive for that every day. And then the net result of that is exactly what you've picked up on, which is, you know, that positivity. P- people come to For Humanity because they feel like they can help. And we love that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's um, definitely one of the things that attracted to me to, I almost feel like I'm a lurker to lurk in the community. Yeah. Um, a, you know, I participate, I look, um, I'm, I'm interested uh, to see how things evolve and what's going on. And, um, and I guess today it's kind of, it's interesting for me to really understand um, how you feel about how it's going, what the priorities, what the future looks like and, and how do we get there and all that sort of stuff. 
But just to percolate in your brain, Ryan, sorry. Um, no. Before we get there, <laughs> um, we ask every uh, interviewee, um, what is AI? Uh, it, that's a great question. So I used in the mission statement, AI and autonomous systems. And, and we do that for a very specific reason. Rather than define AI, uh, which, which it becomes very hard to do. In fact, the, the technical words we use now are artificial intelligence, algorithmic and autonomous systems. Not because I know necessarily where AI finishes and algorithmic systems start and then how that trans, but, but because actually that gives us the all encompassing perspective of the systems that we aim to have some governance, oversight and accountability to. But I do have an answer for you, which is we view artificial intelligence as replacing the human brain or the human decision-making process in systematic form. And then we partner that with autonomous systems because now we can replicate the rest of the human experience, my dexterity, my fingers, my mouth, my eyes, my senses, the sum of which, so the brain and the thought process and problem solving combined with that human dexterity the combination of AI and autonomous systems allows us to replicate human tasks. And so by thinking in this holistic way, what we feel like we're capturing is how the human is either in the equation or maybe being replaced by the equation. And, and we want to govern that process or, or make sure we're examining those systems. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, 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 totally. It's quite a, a broad definition, but I guess you've honed in on that, on the capabilities of the technology to, you know, uh, augment or replace or um, do some extra thing that our brains would normally do or have access to do, that sort of thing. Um, yes. And it kind of doesn't matter what the technology is uh, in that use case. Yeah, and, 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 and there's, there's, a, there's a good comparison to the human, right? Um, mm -hmm. Some humans will solve a math problem this, 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 this way, and others will solve it in a different way. And that's okay, as long as we reach the same conclusion, as, we re as long as we have a ground truth on what is fact in, in that particular case, then kind of how you get there isn't, isn't really that big a deal. So I, I think you're, you're thinking about at least how we're thinking about it the, the correct way. Right. And I guess... It's interesting for me because I looked at your website um, and it started, or oh, sorry, on LinkedIn, it says you started for humanity around about 2016, which is incidentally when I started this podcast. So I feel like we're trendsetters here, but obviously I'm yeah. totally biased. Um, and it interests me to, you know, why did you decide that this was a good thing to start looking into? Uh, learning about, chasing, um, doing something about? I, I didn't. Um, I didn't I didn't look at it um, opportunistically. Mm -hmm. I honestly felt compelled. Um, and, and let me explain. So I had a 25-year finance career, um, Wall Street, uh, World Bank, Standard & Poor's, and I ran my own hedge fund for eight years. And, and that was something that I survived but didn't, didn't thrive at. And so in 2016, I was winding that up. I had more time on my hands because when you're not running the business day to day, you just, mm. you know, I had certain responsibilities and things I had to, to execute upon, but it wasn't a full-time job at that stage. We used AI to manage money. So I have good familiarity with it. 
But more importantly, I think we reached a measure of a tipping point where I was examining the landscape. I was examining the risk management culture coming out of, out of Silicon Valley or lack thereof, I mm. should say. Yeah. I was seeing move fast and break things, but I was seeing move fast and break people and communities and relationships and democratic institutions. But most importantly, Ben, um, my boys were four and six at the time. And I took all of this and I came at it with a, from a risk management background and I kind of extrapolated out into their future what I saw as, as kind of the direction that we were heading. And, and I don't mind sharing with you, mm. I got scared. Sufficiently scared that I felt compelled to do something about it, to start a nonprofit with no plan and no funding. So to say that this was an opportunistic decision definitely was not. Mm -hmm. I, I felt like I had to do it. And honestly, we're still not funded and I'm still doing it and I'm spending a ton of time doing it. So I still feel like we have to do it. Um, but, but now there's more impetus to it in the sense that, you know, we have 700 people from 48 countries and for humanity. And now I also feel compelled to support them and support their passions and their drive and their energy. So there's a lot of things sort of headed in, in the direction that we're headed. Um, awesome. Um, what, I mean, if I, if you don't mind, can I dig a little bit deeper? Because I feel like um, from my personal point of view, I have a similar kind of jumping off point where I saw things, you know, I could see down the road and I wasn't too happy about how things were going. Um, was it was it to do with the companies, the technology itself, like the ideas around how people were thinking about the technology? What was it that was um, initially kind of making you grimace and, and make that decision? It's a, um, I mean, look, I, I, I had a 25-year finance career, meaning I'm in the business making very good money mm -hmm. on the back of other people making money or, or, or building wealth. Um, so let's, let's not pretend that I, you know, I'm a, some great altruist here or, or anything like that. What I saw was too much power, too much control and influence over literally how people were interacting. I saw, it's the breaking of relationships, the breaking of community. I'll give you a, a hardcore example. On social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, <clears throat> we say things to people we would never say to their face. We, we, we do the worst possible things. Mm -hmm. And oh, it's not right, it's not human, it's not, who we are about. It's not bringing about the best uh, of who we are. And, you know, before social dilemma, before coded bias and, 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 you know, sort of more multimedia kind of expressions of this, I knew, I understood the, the nudging and the tweaking and the filtering of, of feeds and creating, you know, people aren't getting good information. They're getting the information they want that entertains them. And, um, and it catches their attention. And, and I knew that this is not good for who we are. It's not about solving problems and building relationships and building compromise and empathy and just, just the best of who humanity is. These, these platforms weren't building it out. 
And um, <clears throat> that looked very unsustainable in the long run, right? That looked like it was going to create genuine damage. And again, that's how you create a, an entity with a name like for humanity. It's mm -hmm. like, wow, you know, we, we, the, the name didn't come by trying to be too ambitious. It came from saying, look, we increasingly are having this, this tension with the machines and tools that we're operating, and we're going to be always on the side of making sure the well-being of humans is the first consideration. I mean, that was, it's been a little while now. Um, so I was wondering how that's gone and yeah. and, and, and where we've got to. Um, and I mean, I, I feel like there's lots of activity. So I was just wondering if you could share some of that um, excitement and, and, and interesting things that are happening with, with our audience. Yeah, no, happy to. And, and you said something <clears throat> at the beginning that I want to address too, mm. which is you referred to yourself as a lurker. And, and I want to make sure that you know that that is completely fine. Mm. The, the environment that we are creating, the opportunity that we're creating in terms of the solutions inside of For Humanity, they are available to people when it's appropriate for them. And so there will be plenty of people inside of For Humanity who are going to learn and watch and grow. And then at some point in time, the right thing and the right job and the right opportunity, the right volunteer moment will come. Mm -hmm. So I want you to, you and everyone who's in For Humanity, to understand that that is completely okay. Now, circling back to, to, to where we've been and, and, and where we're, we're sort of headed to. When I started, I wrote a lot of words about future of work, technological unemployment, rights and freedoms in the fourth industrial revolution, transhumanism, data, should we own our own data? Mm. The thing that I settled upon that was kind of the primary mission is that we do not have inbuilt trust governance, accountability and oversight in our artificial intelligence algorithmic and autonomous systems. Coming from finance, we have a 50 plus year track record of building what I call an infrastructure of trust. Now, if you haven't lived in finance as I have, um, you might not appreciate what I'm saying, which is there's entire businesses, entire industries, entire investment strategies built on the back of independent audit of financial accounting and reporting. So built on top of these numbers, so necessary for their good function, these industries and businesses and strategies. And yet the people who are relying upon them never check these numbers. And what that tells you is that the trust in how these numbers are generated and processed, produced is extremely high. Not perfect, I'm not trying to say this industry is perfect, but it's very high level of trust. And so my thought was, was pretty simple. It was, let's take the good elements of that process and bring it to artificial intelligence and autonomous systems. And so we don't care about debits and credits. We don't care about balance sheets and cash flow statements. That's not relevant to, to AI, okay? But what we do care about is ethics, bias, privacy, trust, and cybersecurity. A holistic lens of looking at how humans may be impacted by these systems. Mm. And then you ask the question, how's it going? I first wrote these words about independent audit of AI systems almost five years ago. 
And so for, for a few years, it was talk, talk, talk. It was convinced, convinced, convinced with not a lot of, of action behind it. And in, and in fact, there were a few missteps along the way as to, to how this was forming. I, I have to say, I'm very glad about the missteps. In other words, uh, ha the things that we might have done to, to help build this process probably aren't the best for humans. And so where it's led to over time, and, and we didn't really get started doing independent audit of AI systems until about May of 2020, right in the heart of, of COVID sort of, uh, you know, being a big deal and in, impacting us sort of globally. And it was because of COVID and it was because we looked at digital contact tracing and came together as a group of, of people who were concerned about digital contact tracing that we formed a process, a robust process for creating independent audit uh, criteria. March of 2020, for Humanity was one person with no lines of audit drafted on any systems. Fast forward to today, December of 20, uh, 2021, 18-ish months or so, we are now 700 people from 48 countries with 5,000 lines of audit drafted working with the UK government, working with the EU go, uh, commission, working with the US, with different entities in the US on a regulatory basis, Canada, New Zealand. That's progress. Have we changed things? No. Are we close to changing things? I think we are. And in the end, Ben, what we're mm -hmm. looking to do, ideally, and we're, we're still far away from this, is we are hoping that these audits are mandated on all AIs and autonomous systems. Don't care what they are. As long as they impact humans, we believe that these audits shouldn't be mandated because when these audits exist, then we build this infrastructure of trust. Then we can rely on the governance, oversight, and accountability embedded in the system in a robust way. That's the long run mission. I think we're on a really great path towards it. Um, we have a long way to go to. A lot of hard work. Mm -hmm. I think um, uh, there's some personal things I could say at the end about auditing stuff, which um, I'd love to talk to you about. Um, sure. The auditing process is, um, you know, substantially a community effort, right? So it's all these people coming together, as far as I can see, to formulate what could be in these audits and to, and then, you know, I'm presuming a lot of, hard work from yourself and, you know, key members to get these things into the right organization's hands um, with a view to then have companies pick this up in the short term and, you know, maybe mandates in the future or some sort of standardization in the future. Um, but the idea is that the, there will be those individuals who can, you know, go into companies um, and uh, run those audits and, and, and impress this idea, which presumably is, is around um, best practice around all this stuff, uh, like you said, like um, security, bias, um, ethics, and um, trust, I guess. And privacy, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I wonder, <laughs> I don't really want to dig too, too much into the, the kind of the semantics of those things, but I wonder how trust uh, figures with all this because it feels like uh, like one which actually leverages 
is leveraged by the others. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a bigger term, and actually, in the those five pillars for us, it is our catch-all category, like ethics specific, privacy specific, bias specific, and I you know I could do you know bias kind of data sciencey, right? Mm -hmm. Data science meets law. Privacy is is law meets technology in terms of data protection. Yep. Ethics is is definitely the ethics of the system, but it's also what we found, and I, I'm getting to trust, so I promise. Mm. Um, uh, the, the ethics side of things, we found one of the things that we do as a society is we find we, we see problems and we, we, we give them to engineers and we say, solve, mm. right? You know what engineers are great at? They're great at solving problems. And, and that's fantastic, okay? But the other thing when you're dealing with problem solving on what we call socio-technological systems, so in other words, systems where the human is in the equation, okay? Solving problems with solely an engineering purview mm. creates problems. Because now what happens is engineers are making ethical choices all along the way that they are not only unaware of, but unqualified to make. And so a big part of our process from design to decommission of these systems is to extract these instances of ethical choice and say, look, you know, you're great at solving problems, but you're not really trained for this. And this is a problem as much as anything else is, let's give it to the trained professionals. So part of what our process calls for when we think about ethics mm. is, is an empowered, standing, well-trained ethics committee who can opine on these ethical choices in algorithm ethics. Okay, so that's ethics. We did bias, we did bias, we did privacy. Cybersecurity is kind of the ring fence around everything, right? And that leaves us with trust. And trust is definitely our catch-all category. Included in trust is control and safety of these systems, which is kind of very mechanical, right? Mm -hmm. But then we also have accessibility. And accessibility is not just can you and I get to it, but if I'm disabled, different languages, different socioeconomic strata, um, there's a lot of elements that go into accessibility. And then I move on to transparency and disclosure and explainability. All of this falls under trust because mm -hmm. what it does when you achieve and meet all these goal, goals is now when you use these systems, you can use them confidently with comfort, trust. And that's where that trust category comes in. But you were mm -hmm. right to perceive it as, as a little bit of an outlier because it really is a catch-all for us. Yeah, I guess because you couldn't have trust if if it wasn't like secure, right? There's these Absolutely. things lead into each other. Um, uh, you mentioned that there was like a ethics um, committee or something. Is that sort of internal to companies or is that to do with for humanity? So, yeah, our audit process requires, uh, it's, it's two vectors. Mm. So it's top-down governance, oversight, accountability. And when we talk about top-down, that layer, that infrastructure that, and foundation works, they apply to every AI, every autonomous system, don't care what it is, okay? And then we do audit criteria from the bottom up, AI by AI by AI, autonomous system by autonomous system, okay? Because each one will be nuanced in how it sort of impacts with, with data and humans and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's how we think about audit. When we're thinking about those top-down elements, we create accountability structures. 
And when we talk about accountability, what we're saying is an ethics committee, algorithmic risk committee, children's data oversight committee, uh, testing and evaluation committee. These are our key structures. Mm -hmm. They might not have to be there. If you're a five person shop, you know, you don't have to have five people on, on every committee, like not, yeah. not the point, right? The point is, is that we want to be clear that there are assigned responsibilities, duties, there's accountability for things being done to achieve compliance. And most importantly, there's a certain level of training and expertise that goes along with this. And so we highlight all of those issues and we say, look, if you're going to have an ethics committee, you need people trained in ethics. They have to be thinking about, uh, they have to be, they have to know how to think about these issues and more importantly, mm. how to document and how to have audit compliance as well. And so, yes, we do call for a standing and empowered ethics committee to handle these. Uh, I'll give you a very specific example. In the UK, there's a fabulous gold standard law called the Children's Code. It's age-appropriate design code. It's teaching, it's creating the, the interface between children and how data is accessed from children. Mm. And so it, it actually uh, dictates some of these design features. Now, one of the, the parts of this law says that the shareholder value needs to be considered on par with the well-being of the child. For profit companies, have never been forced to, to make that decision. They're shareholder value companies. They do that first. Now, most want to do the right thing by well-being of the child because they know they're going to have more customers and those customers mm -hmm. will be yeah. Yeah, yeah, right? So, so usually it, it's a natural follow-on, but as we've seen from social media and some other places, it's not necessarily in the best interest of the child equating to profitability. Mm -hmm. And so now what they're saying is, is, you got to think about these things on par with each other, okay? Who's qualified to do that in a, in a company? I, I, I asked that question, you know, sort of rhetorically, mm. right? The answer we found is, is there's not a lot of people qualified to make these decisions, and therefore, we want to put it with the most objective portion of the company. And so that's where this standing body, this ethics committee comes from, who needs to be designed and trained to think about the ethical issue, not mm. the profitability issue. Let the CEO, the CFO, the chief operating officer, let them do that, right? Chief design, let them do that. Let this standing ethics committee handle these tough subjective questions. And I'm not even telling you, I know right or wrong here. I'm not mm. saying that at all. The audit process doesn't say that. We don't say it. We say, look, you figure out what is the right balance between profitability? I'm using my hands here for a podcast, so I know yeah. I know how silly that is. But um, you figure out what the what the the right balance is between shareholder wealth and well-being, and you do it objectively. You document it. You accept the residual risk, and then in a lot of cases, you disclose it because the last thing we want to do is we want to create a virtuous feedback loop of here are my ethical choices. Let's share them with people. Let's share them in a robust and positive way that says, look, I'm trying to strike this balance and I know it's hard. So I'm going to tell you how I strike the balance and you tell me if you if you disagree, because the last arbiter of this should be society. And so it's a big uh, a big process for enabling a better feedback loop on these very difficult decisions.
Sorry, very long answer. No, no, no. I, I, I believe they, that uh, Children's Code came in this year, early this year? September 2nd. It, 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 so it, it was in place for uh, a year to, yes. to transition. Yep. And now it's in force as of September 2nd of 2021. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I believe I was uh, looking at it last Christmas, in fact, going, um, this is going to be interesting because I was actually making a computer game for kids. And it will fall under that Correct. in certain ways. Um, do you think, I mean, that for me, I mean, I feel like that's half of the problem. Um, bringing the the stipulation, I'm using my hands again. Um, so <laughs> um, uh, we've got, we've got things aligned, basically, um, in our hands. Um you know, things are aligned between this profitability thing, which is obviously kind of a given because like, you're not going to be in business if you haven't got this profitability thing. So we can kind of almost put that away and say, you're essentially a business and therefore you know what you're doing about profitability. Um, and, and that children's uh, code is interesting that it's bringing, you know, the, the kind of audience up to um, consideration in that way. And I wonder if that's something that you, like for me, it feels like something that could just be blanket applied to anything, right? You know, you're making a thing for individuals at the end of the day. You're generally not making things for people who are not people, let's say, who don't have credit cards. Like you're not selling to dogs and cats. Uh, you're selling to their owners. And you probably want to bring their owners up to that point as well, regardless if they're children or not. Um, I get, that's just my opinion, obviously. Um, is, is that sort of the thing that you might want to see happening in AI, but, you know, or broadly speaking? The, the answer is is yes, but unfortunately, we're behind. So, um, you know, we've had close to 20 years of a lot of these firms learning how to uh, manipulate us is too strong a word, learning how to play on our easiest desires. Um, and, and that's what the social dilemma sort of captured, right, is, mm. is how does Facebook and, and other, <clears throat> other entities play on the things that make us comfortable, make us, you know, more likely to respond, right? That's what leads to their profitability. And they found amazing ways, unfortunately, which are probably detrimental to us and our human and community relationships to cause engagement. Um, you know, there, there's, there's no more human, natural human reaction than to defend, right? And so if, if something comes across your social media feed and you disagree with it, and we've seen this in our politics in the United States massively, mm. right? And you disagree with it, or you think it's not correct, we have this very natural inclin inclination to fight and to, to stand up for that. And the, these social media platforms have enabled and empowered that. Um, you know, think, think about the loudness of a person's voice. And I don't mean volume. I mean, its ability to, to sort of be out there. Well, now with Twitter or Facebook, our opinion, we think, can matter. And so we express it. And I'm not sure that it is the best way to enable our well-being. The number of people who I see hurting 
because in, in their families and their relationships, because they're disagreeing with people mm -hmm. is enormous. And, and here's the thing, this is all built on the back of a socio-technological world that is giving us a false sense of um, self-sufficiency. Let me explain. Because I can order on Amazon and everything shows up, right? I can order my groceries. Um, you know, I'm not out in the field tilling the farm and growing my own food, right? And, and a bad event happens and now I have no food, right? So I, 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 I compare this to sort of 100, 150 years ago. If I, I couldn't survive on my own 150 years ago, right? If I was the farmer, I needed somebody to give me wood and nails and, mm. and, and, and you know, general store and things like that, right? I needed other people literally to survive. So here's the thing about needing people. When you need people, and, and let, let's do you and me for a second, right? I need you to survive. You know what, Ben, if you and I disagree about something, what happens, right? We can fight about it. We can have even a nasty fight about it. I'm not saying people mm. didn't fight 150 years ago. But in the end, you probably needed me for the food I was growing. And I probably needed you, let's say you're in the lumber yard for, for wood, just so I can build my barn and my house, right? You know what I have to do when you and I have a fight? I have to come back to you and figure out how to build a relationship with you. I have to have empathy. I have to have sympathy. I have to consider your point of view. I might have to say, I'm sorry, mm. right? And you know what happens? We work it out. We figure it out. That is human, that is relationship, that is community, and it's based on needing each other. And now we have this belief that we don't need anyone. And therefore we flame more things, right? We attack things. We say the worst vitriol we would never say to a human to their face. And that's just wrong. It's just bad for community. It's bad for our well-being. And it's just one simple example mm. of not having well-being. We, we got started on this about balancing profitability with well-being. Well, in the end, you know, some of these platforms have found that they can make a heck of a lot of money by playing off some of humanity's less than best attributes. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like... It's okay, you know, that last fight, it wasn't that bad. You don't have to apologize. It's okay. We worked <laughs> it out. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. It didn't it didn't get to fisticuffs. Um no. <laughs> uh I feel like you started, uh, sort of sidestepped my my question though there. Uh -oh. um, I if, didn't I, if I could to. press you, if I could yeah, press please. you. Um for, you know, would you like to see this uh, sort of behavior kind of enshrined in company formation, you know? The, yeah, the answer is yes. We we call for a, and I apologize, I was yeah, not that's right. excited. That's right. I think I got <laughs> myself going on a tangent there. So um, we call for a standing and empowered ethics committee. Um, we call for a robust code of ethics and code of data ethics that are, and, and, hmm. that are operationalized, not just words on a, on a paper, but lived, lived experience. And I actually argue that this will lead to greater profitability. It will lead to more sustained customer service. Let me translate mm -hmm. this into ex, uh, explainability. So, so we think of, of kind of a, a pendulum of, of uh, interpretability, explainability, and then something we call explainability plus. 
Interpretability is when we take models and we understand them in a technical way at the feature level in a way that'll allow us to tweak or change the model, but it's a technical and it's an internal only thinking. Mm -hmm. When we leave the company and when we leave the technical description, now we have explainability. When we're talking to users or those impacted by the system, we have to use clear and transparent and reasonable language. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is we're saying, here's why the system came out with this result. That is explainability. But I actually don't think explainability is sufficient, sufficient in supporting human dignity. Being told why an algorithm said you don't get this credit or this loan, I mean, look, it's better than nothing. It's better mm -hmm. than hearing nothing, but it doesn't really help me. So that's where we move to what I call explainability plus. And so this is this nature of recognizing that you will have longer term customers who are going to be more loyal, who are going to do more business with you if you treat them with dignity. And that's where explainability plus comes in. What explainability plus is, is this idea that if you, you take the, that explanation of why you, you failed or, or got the negative result from an algorithm and teach them how to have a better result next time. Teach them where they can improve how they interface with the system, what the system looks at, what it requires. Don't have late payments. Maybe ask for a little bit more money. Maybe have a full-time contract in place in terms of getting these loans. When you educate people on how they will get a better result, now you're embracing their human dignity and saying, look, I care about who you are and I hope you'll become a customer of my business in the future. The thing that we forget is that corporations exist because humans chose to allow corporations to generate profit and exist for our benefit. Corporations do not exist for the benefit of themselves. They exist for the benefit of humans. And so all of that is to say, standing in a powered ethics committee that's governing how these companies interface with humans, focusing on positive well-being will lead to greater sustainability over the long run mm -hmm. in terms of even profitability. So I do believe that. I think that's a very important. It's embedded in all of our work. It's embedded in, in what we require out of these systems. And again, that's where I hope there will be certain mandate to this, not to say what well-being is. That bar is always going to move, right? We have different ethos. Mm -hmm. We have different more, you know, uh, morality and so on just document how you're balancing between your profitability and the well-being of your children, clients, customers, however you think of them. Did, yeah. did I do a better job this time of, of getting to your question? No, 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 it's fabulous. I, I, I don't mean to be um, <laughs> pithy about um, uh, or forthright about my questions. They're just as, you know, whatever they are. Um, yeah. The... I mean, I feel like we could talk about this all day, Ryan, which is which is yes. part of the, the joy of um, the, the fact that I get to talk to you and, and do this podcast at all, really. Um, the, the Some of the stuff that you were talking about there really hit me, really hit home to me because um, I have this design background and that kind of um, explainability plus is... It, from my point of view, is a very designery thing. You know, yes. you're, you're creating this structure, and you know, there's user experience and all these different acronyms for different jobs that people have. But at the end of the day, you're you're creating this kind of service. Essentially, you're creating this thing with AI or automated systems, 
It does a thing, it has some output, and that output can manifest in different ways. And what you're saying is that we need to, or what I think you're saying is that we have to manifest them in a way that actually makes sense for upholding this relationship, this idea that we have um, these ideals of rights and human dignity and all these words that um, have meaning to us. And we want to design systems which kind of reflect that, you know, reflect hopefully a world. Um, I always say kind of like that you want your kids to live in, <laughs> like reflecting right. back on what we were saying, you know, your, your parents and things like that. And you don't want your kids or whoever, when they grow up, to have a system that's go, no, you can't get a mortgage, whatever it is, and that be it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just be like, okay, um, I'll go then. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I troubled you. <laughs> no, <laughs> you will never. You will never be able to buy a house. Right. That might be for other reasons, obviously, but like you know, um, out where it might be welfare or it might be uh, access to insurance or healthcare or whatever it is, and these things will uh, become. Um, you know, we can imagine how important they are um, when we start embedding these systems um, wholeheartedly everywhere yeah. where we get into the situation where we have to be designing for um, wellness, dignity, um, people's well-being, um, and, and, you know, this better future that we want to live in because why are we bothering otherwise, you know, almost? Exactly. Yeah, What? It, it, it's a funny thing what's the point mm. right if, if the point isn't human well-being what's the point of the tool what's the point of of business um so you know it's the unfortunate thing is is when we create systems that allow people to be in a power structure sometimes they forget Right. Sometimes they they get focused on their well-being or employees well-being, which, you know, isn't uh, it's not competition. Um, but when that becomes the driver, it becomes easy to lose focus and forget that, you know, you might be interacting with. And, and let's be honest, it's difficult to manage the well-being of two billion people at the same time. Right. A lot of times we have competing interests. So. Um, it's, I do not belittle the challenge, um, but because it's a difficult challenge, you know, it's this, the Spider-Man principle, mm. right? With, with great power comes great responsibility. And unfortunately, I don't think that we've held, and, and part of this is on us as mm. humans, right? We are not holding these entities to the responsibility that they should have. Mm. Yeah. What if this goes well? What does that look like? <laughs> so um, I do believe, and, and you know, it's it's not often that someone gets to say this, but I, I believe what I'm saying. I believe we're creating an entire industry. And when I say industry, the financial accounting industry is a $55 billion industry globally last year. I think we're creating a new industry that will be bigger than that mm -hmm. in 10 years. So we are literally at the forefront, you know, day one of creating this industry of embedded governance, oversight, accountability of AI, algorithmic and autonomous systems. Okay? Mm -hmm. So I believe this will be a whole industry. I think it will impact every country on the planet. I think it will be embedded into every system that's out there that impacts a human. 
I think there will be literally thousands upon thousands of people trained in independent audit of AI systems. <clears throat> they won't all be auditors. Some of them will build systems that do a lot of the automated auditing. Some of them will do software integration. Some will provide advice. Some will provide guidance. Some will provide pre-audit service. Some will conduct the, the final exam audits. Some will sit inside companies and help achieve that compliance. So there's lots of roles to play with this knowledge, but I believe it's an entire industry that will be attached to these systems. And, and we're literally on day one. And, and most people don't know how to look at a new industry from day one. They, you know, they come into an industry years into its existence. And so it's, it's a little bit difficult to get your hands around what this is going to look like. But from our perspective, we will only ever do two things is for humanity. Number one, we will create the rules. Now that sounds like we have authority. We do not, and we do not seek authority. What we do when we create the rules is we submit them to the authorities and we say, here, is this what you meant? Yeah. They can say, no, you don't have it. And we go back, we do our work and we come back and we say, here, is this what you meant, right? So we serve. Yeah. The other role that we play is we will train individuals on how to be compliant with these, these audit criteria so that they can play all those rules that I just, roles that I, I just described. Those are the only two uh, roles that for humanity will play in this big substantial ecosystem. And from there, all of what I'm hoping and imagining will happen will be because of that word that I used before, mandate. Mm -hmm. In 1973, the audit industry, so these were the practitioners, they came together and they normalized all their audit rules. In the United States, it was called Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. In London, it was International Financial Reporting Standards, or precursors to that eventually became IFRS. Once that happened, and this is kind of an odd twist in history, mm. the SEC in the United States, which was governing how companies were listed on exchanges, they, were, they basically said, look, we want all of you to abide by these rules so that we could compare company to company in terms of exchange listings. So they mandated that you had to follow these audit and accounting rules, and that spread like wildfire all around the world. And thus, we, we created this industry of you have to follow these rules. And the people who were, were making sure you followed those rules were auditors. They were accountants mm -hmm. at the big four accounting uh, firms that we have today. Uh, which was a lot bigger, and they shrunk down to four over these these last fifty years. So um, that is what I hope will happen in AI and autonomous systems. But instead of using numbers, it's ethics, bias, privacy, trust, and cybersecurity as the lens in which we create these rules, and then we mandate that those rules are followed. And we're seeing that. I mean, Europe mm. is leading the way in terms of creating laws that essentially capture the kinds of things that, that we're advocating for. UK is very close second place in terms of drafting the, these rules. And then the United States is, yeah, a, a thousand, thousand years behind. Um, and, and, and honestly, thinks we're doing the right thing by being hands off. And, and mm -hmm. unfortunately, um, I think the momentum's against us and it needs to shift back. Uh, hold on, there's some rules here. Yeah, I, I think from, I, I guess, way that maybe Europe are thinking about it is let's create a playing field where everyone's equal because we all have to abide by these certain rules and we're going to bring those rules up 
to a level that we think is appropriate for this playing field, right? And in America and other places, you know, who haven't um, necessarily um, done the legwork or implemented anything yet, and although in Europe, not the AI yet, they've got GDPR looking into it. Um, there's just this, this, it's just a break things situation, you know, and this, the, the, like you were saying, with great power comes great responsibility. The mentality we've seen Silicon Valley and, and has spread out from, from that kind of environment of um, creating things and, um, and fast growth um, is to do with, you know, just a, just applying stuff and seeing what happens and, and hoping for yeah. the best. And um, I was doing a talk last week and I'm just, I just really hope that that mentality is, is over. You know, it, it's from what you were saying, you know, it sounds like that the time is over for break things. And especially when you, you know, you said you, you're dealing with um, millions, if not billions of people who are able to access these things, you know, or could have the opportunity to access things. And hopefully we will be making them, you know, enable them to do that. So yeah. you have the ability to affect lots of people and you should probably, you know, be doing it up here. I'm, I'm waving my hands around again, but bringing them up <laughs> instead of right. being all over the place, you know. Um, 100% correct. I, I actually had a, a quick interchange uh, exchange with, um, with someone from OpenAI who was saying, you know, if you over-parameterize your systems, what it will do is it won't allow the system to, to kind of wander and find new things. And, and, and he was saying that as, as a criticism, mm. right? And I came back and I was like, wait a minute, I wanna celebrate that. Because when you have a consistent scope, nature, context, and purpose, when you have that known in advance, then you have a, a precision. And I'm not saying don't explore things, okay? Mm -hmm. It's okay to explore things behind the scenes, okay? You can't explore things in the open with my personal data, right? You can't explore an impact that's going to impact me without asking me about it, without checking, right? Yeah. And yeah. so my argument was very simple. Good. Because if you want to, if you think there might be somewhere else to move, then have some thought about it and talk to me about it in terms of how you might interact with me and my personal data so that you know that I want to be in that mix. Mm -hmm. And then when you combine that with the world of web scraping and the way that data is just being hoovered up all around the world, it's literally petrifying. Um, and it's, it's, really, it's really not okay to be operating with people as data without good consent good reason, good rationale, good control, and so on. Yeah. And I, I feel like part of that was answered with the GDPR stuff because they were there's this big stick that we can now hit people with. Um, obviously, companies, not necessarily, you know, bad actors or hackers or whatever, um, but these multi-billion dollar companies, they can, you know, they reasonably can be fined a lot of money if they are seen to be doing something like this. Um, and then by extension, we now have this kind of specificity coming in around the um, kinds of contexts that we can use AI within what is the AI, uh, European AI codes. Um, but 
yeah, however it finishes. However, yeah, yeah it comes out. Um, you know, there's the start of that process. Um, but I've I've had a look at it, and I'm I'm enjoying um, the kinds of things they're pulling out. It's it's interesting, and it's quite uh, extremely verbose. Obviously, I don't come from a lawyer's background, so it's it's hard reading. Um, but it's nice that we are getting to the point where we are putting down those lines. You know, this is um, manipulation is not okay guys that's that's correct yes yeah those sorts of those sorts of barriers to entry um yeah which which is fine and hopefully that's fine you know that's not a barrier to innovation that we aren't manipulating people in in my mind um yeah exactly um so i feel like ryan um if do you have anything else that you are dying to get off your chest before i ask you the last question the podcast uh no nothing nothing jumps to mind i will say that uh this has been very easy i enjoyed the conversation would be happy to do it uh again with you uh you know at at an appropriate time and uh so you know you use that as you will Mm -hmm. but uh, i i think i'm ready for your your last question as well great so thanks uh again ryan um the last question we always ask on the podcast is how do you feel about the future with AI and automated decision, um, automated algorithms and things. Are you what things excite you and what things are you a little bit scared of? Well, I'm still scared about um, the power and control being wielded uh, by some. You just mentioned GDPR, and GDPR is an excellent law for protecting data. Here's my problem with it: I don't think anyone in the world is compliant with GDPR. Not one entity. So it's great to have the law, mm. but until we're all complying with that law in a robust fashion, I still have fear, right? I still have mm. concern about how data is being used and, and, and appropriately protected. Um, I am extremely encouraged about our ability to make a difference, seeing the growth, seeing the energy, seeing the way that people approach for humanity and lots of other groups that are out there working uh, in a similar place. So I'm encouraged that we will get there. I'm encouraged that we will make a difference uh, with the work that we're doing. And I'm encouraged that we will get to a place where well-being of the human is an important part of the equation and built in a compliance by design sort of way. So um, I, I feel I feel very positive about that direction. And uh, now I'm, I'm hoping that uh, that we can make a difference. Awesome. So with that uh, amazing, positive kind of finishing line, Ryan, thank you so much for your time, your energy and your your skills and your experience. Uh, if people want to follow you, get involved, how can they do that? So we have a website. It's uh, HTTPS uh, for humanity center. So it's pretty easy to find. Anyone can get involved in For Humanity. Uh, the barriers to entry are not very high. It's your email address and signing the code of conduct. Once you do those two things, you are a part of For Humanity. But as I mentioned kind of earlier in our talk, you can come in and, and, and you fulfilled 100% of what I would ever demand of you. So you could sit back and lurk and learn and watch and do nothing, and that's okay. Just know that if you are there and you find things that are interesting and you want to advance things and you stick your hand up, it will get called on. Um, So we have lots of tools, lots of ways 
that people can uh, be empowered with the things that we do. So you can come and, and, and make a difference inside of For Humanity. Uh, the, the best way to start is to just register on the website and say, I'd love to get involved. I do a personal meeting, uh, you've been through it, Ben, a mm -hmm. personal onboarding with, with everybody who, who comes to For Humanity, and hopefully that kind of gets you started on how to get plugged into the community. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Ryan. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Ben. Hi, and welcome to the end of the podcast. Thanks again to Ryan for coming on the show and for all his hard work at For Humanity. As I mentioned, I like to lurk and every now and then put my head above the parapet in the Slack community that they have at For Humanity. I'm also very excited to participate and just see what kinds of materials they put out there for the Children's Code, GDPR and AI ethics audits they're putting together on their site and part of that community. So I'd also urge you to check those out if you're interested in that area. If you're interested in AI ethics generally, um, I recently did a talk as part of Tech Ethics London discussing how things have changed over the last six years as we've been doing the podcast. So you can find that listed on my website, benbyford.com. Thanks very much and I'll see you next time.